right, how many of you are familiar with the game Would You Rather? Just a fun, simple game. Got a holiday edition. Thanksgiving is just a few days away, so I want to know what's going to be on your plate. All right, now you only get to pick one, but I'll give you two options, and then you'll get to raise your hand and vote for the one that you want to pick. All right, would you rather have a turkey or a ham for Thanksgiving? Raise your hands if it's turkey. Pretty good. Raise your hands if you're wrong. A handful. Look at these knuckleheads. They want you do your best to raise these kids, and I tell you what. Um, now let's move to the sides. Are you, are you going to have stuffing next to your turkey, or are you going to have green bean casserole? Raise your hands for stuffing. Okay, this one's a little more split down the line. Let's have a hand raised for green bean casserole. Some of y'all are raising your hand on both. I saw that, okay? You can't do that. You've got to pick one, right? Uh, how about let's move to dessert now. How many of you would rather have a piece of pecan pie or a piece of pumpkin pie? Raise your hands high for pecan. Uh, clearly in the minority on this one. Now raise your hands for pumpkin. Very good. Okay, now keep that hand up there if there's more whipped cream on that plate than there is pie, right? Okay, you know how to do it. You see, we all love to vote, don't we? And this was fun, wasn't it? But it's interesting, you know, as much as we love to vote, to have a say, to get to pick, our current political climate is anything but laughter and joy most of the time, isn't it? Instead of laughter and smiles, there's deep division, there's anxiety, fear, angst, or some combination of all three. And so today we're going to be talking in our Kingdom Living series about the kingdom and politics. The kingdom and politics. I see some eyebrows being raised. It's like, has he lost his mind? He talked about sexuality last week. He's talking about politics this week. Yes, I think God's Word has something to say, and I think that we magnify the Lord in this current world that we find ourselves in when we get it right on big topics like sexuality or politics. And there is such deep division around these political ideologies and methodologies. You've got conservatives versus liberals. You've got Democrats versus Republicans. Within the church, you have sort of the social gospel versus the fundamentalism that you find. And it feels like everywhere we go, the culture is trying to push us to one extreme or another. Say there's no middle ground. You're either one or the other. You can't pick. It's polarizing, and it's pushing us to these extremes. And over and over, for me personally, it, it feels like often we're forced to pick the lesser of two evils instead of something that we really wholeheartedly agree with. And it doesn't feel like there's a lot of good options because, you know, on one extreme, you either withdraw completely from the process and have nothing to do with it, or if you overinvest in it, you find yourself aligning with sin and corruption in many cases. And so it's really, really difficult. And, and it does feel often like the lesser of two evils. And that's why I think we need to talk about the kingdom and politics because I, as a pastor and as a believer, have been troubled in recent years by the allegiance that I see many of my brothers and sisters in Christ giving to their political party. And many times I can recognize their political leanings more than I can recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. It often appears that people are more passionate or have a greater allegiance for their political leanings than they do for their Lord and Savior. 
And so as we wade into this, I want to give a few disclaimers. First and foremost, I recognize that this is a topic that is riddled with landmines, just like last week was. But I pray by the Holy Spirit that we'll be able to navigate that together and we'll be able to see what Scripture and what specifically the Lord Jesus Christ says to us about this topic. And so I'm sure, like I said last week, I'm sure I'll say something wrong or I'll stop short of what you wish I had said about a specific topic, but I will remind you we're dealing with a very big topic in about a 35-minute chunk of time, okay? So there is more to be said on these things, but I also want to give credit to John Tyson. He's the pastor of Church of the City in downtown Manhattan, and a message was shared with me recently in the last few months uh, that just taught me something new. And so I want to give credit where credit is due. I've changed several of the things about that message, but there's enough of it that I am leaning on his teaching because he presented a teaching of Jesus in a way that was new to me and resonated very, very deeply with me on this subject. And so I want to share that with you, and I want to try to bring us some actionable ideas on how we can live in the kingdom as disciples of Jesus Christ in a an environment that is fraught with landmines. It's got landmines to preach about and it's got landmines to walk out those doors and interact with people, maybe even around your Thanksgiving table. And you know there's going to be some conversations. And so I hope and pray that this is helpful and informative. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. If you need a Bible, we've got some in the seats in front of you. And uh, you can turn to page 1575 there. Just to give you a little bit of context about this passage, um, this is during the last week of Jesus' life that we read this passage, that this teaching takes place. It's in Jerusalem, and pretty much the whole world, in some ways, has come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. That's what's happening in the last week of Jesus' life. And so it's a city filled with people who are residents of nations all over the world. Yet they've all come for one purpose. They've all come as the people of God to celebrate the Passover. And there's a deep, deep irony in this as Jesus comes into the city and they shout Hosanna and they think he is the Messiah and they're here to celebrate the Passover feast. Everybody is celebrating the Passover feast, which celebrates the exodus from Egypt, from political tyranny, from slavery under Pharaoh. They're celebrating this under Roman tyranny, borderline slavery, being taxed severely, being subjugated by a more powerful foreign government. And so Jesus enters to the shouts of Hosanna, then he leaves. Scripture tells us he goes back out of the city. Then he comes in the second time and he enters, and here he cleanses the city, or cleanses the, the temple, sorry. And he casts out the money changers and the people that were overcharging for the sacrifices that were prescribed by the law. It was this profiting off of religion that so infuriated Jesus that he would turn over the tables and he would make a whip of cords and he would say, stop turning this into a den of robbers. This is my father's house. It's to be a house of prayer for all nations. And then he leaves again. And when he comes back the, the third time, he starts to preach in the temple courts. And instead of preaching against Roman government, which is what you would expect a Messiah to do, he starts preaching against the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite. And so where we pick up the story, 
they have uh, sent a delegation as they had this habit of doing. They, they were slow learners uh, because it never really goes well, as we'll see. But in verse 13 of Mark chapter 12, we pick up the story that later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. And they came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Time out here. This is my heart. This is my prayer each week that I would step into this pulpit as a man of integrity and preach and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And I would encourage you to pray for me every week that I would continue to do that. Okay, timeout's over. They're buttering him up, right? So the, all of that, like I'm taking that seriously, and this is deeply a uh, passionate point for me that I would be this, but they're really just buttering him up to get to the question. Here's the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so they brought him the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. You see, they're trying to put Jesus into an impossible situation. They're trying to put Jesus into a situation where he either has to affirm Roman tyranny, which would cause all the people to you know, have nothing to do with him, or he has to speak against this Roman tyranny which would make him a revolutionary, and Rome would probably step in and deal with him quickly. And it all has to do with this imperial tax. You see, when he, they ask the question in verse 14, should we pay the imperial tax or shouldn't we? The imperial tax was a one denarius tax per person that had to be paid to the Roman government. And if you couldn't pay, then you had to borrow money from a tax collector and pay interest. And so a lot of people were in deep, deep debt because of this imperial tax. And to make matters worse, the imperial tax was used by Rome in all of their provinces. Rome would go in, they would collect this imperial tax, and then that was what was used to fund the army and to fund the infrastructure that kept the tyrannical government in place. So they were basically saying, you pay for us to subjugate you. It was a terrible situation. It was a rock and a hard place. And they're trying to put Jesus between a rock and a hard place to either endorse this and support the Roman tyranny or to launch a revolt. But Jesus, as he so often does, he threads the needle beautifully. And we see this in verse 17. After he has them bring the coin and he says, whose image is this and whose inscription? And they agree, it's Caesar's. He says to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God, what is God's? And so when he says give to Caesar, that's Caesar's coin. And you're using it in trade. So you're already participating in this. I'm not telling you to go over and above. I'm just telling you to give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. You're under his authority right now because of this. But he also adds, give to God what is God's. And I want to look at this statement in verse 17 and learn three things that Jesus teaches us about the kingdom and politics. And we'll kind of work through it phrase by phrase. That first phrase, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, teaches us that we should recognize and obey the government. We should recognize and obey the government, even an evil government. He's holding a coin 
a blasphemous coin with a fake God that is being used to subjugate God's people. Okay, so this is not like you picked this person. This is like all authority under heaven is given by God. Jesus is going to say that to Pilate in a few days. You would have no authority unless it was given to you by my Father. And so even in evil government, we are taught as followers of Christ, as residents of the kingdom, to recognize and obey the government. And the reality is at this point that Jesus is recognizing that it's no longer a theocracy. A theocracy is when God is the king. And this was how it was originally set up. If you go back and you read your Old Testament, up until the time of Saul, the idea was that God was the king. And that there might be judges or there might be leaders, but there was one king and the king was God. And the people said, no, we want a king. We see these other nations, they have a king over them. We want a king like they do. And he says, you know, through the prophet Samuel, he says, you know, this is what the king's going to do. He's going to take the best and the brightest. He's going to put your men in his army. He's going to put your women in his harem. You don't really want a king. You want God to be your king. And they said, no, 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 we understand all that. We want a king. And from that time forward... The vast majority of the kings were not good kings. They were not good people. Saul was a train wreck. David was a good king. Solomon was a pretty good king, but he took the whole wine, women, and song thing to an extreme. And after him, it is a vast majority bad kings, an occasional good king that tries to bring the people back to God, and then they fall away again, which leads to the exile, that leads to the dispersion, that leads to the overthrow of the nation of Israel. And it's fascinating to me that throughout the Old Testament, the people of God find themselves in the court of a foreign king. Think about Joseph. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago in our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series. Joseph finds himself in the court of Pharaoh as Pharaoh's right-hand man. No one in the nation was more powerful than Joseph, and yet that's a foreign king. And he's in the court of a foreign king. And then you fast forward a little bit, you see Daniel. Daniel finds himself in the court of four foreign kings, the kings of Persia, after they cart off the best and the brightest when they take over Jerusalem, and he's in the court of a foreign king, and he's to serve his foreign king faithfully. And when he brings his divine wisdom, it expands the foreign king's kingdom, okay? So think about this. This isn't a new concept. Esther finds herself in the court of a foreign king for such a time as this. And there are other examples. Jesus himself will submit to this ruling government in just a few chapters when he dies on a Roman cross. And he had the power to overcome that, but he chose to submit himself to a corrupt foreign king. It doesn't stop with him, though. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 13 and in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And then Peter picks up the narrative in 1 Peter chapter 2. All of these have passages, lengthy passages that encourage the people of God to submit to and honor the government, the governing authorities, giving credit to God for establishing them and saying, even if they're corrupt, even if they're actually persecuting you, you submit and you honor and you pray for the emperor. And so... The lesson here to recognize and obey the government is to participate in and to support the good goals of the state and the government and to come under that. If you choose to live in this location, that's the governing authority. You come under that. Now, Michael Gerstner is a historian and a sociologist who has identified five good goals of government. 
that when government is working right, it brings these to a wider group of people, and we are to participate in that and to seek the good of that. Jeremiah wrote that to people in exile, to seek the good of the city, even this foreign corrupt city under a foreign corrupt king. Now, Gerstner lays out order, justice, virtue, prosperity, and safety as five good goals of government. And when government is working right, there's more order, there's more justice, there's more virtue, more prosperity, and more safety. And we as Christians can uniquely bring the Christian ethic to those things as we participate in government. The unique Christian perspective would include human dignity, concern for the poor, a healthy suspicion of human nature that recognizes there has to be checks and balances, that unlimited power brings corruption, a priority of the other person instead of just a get-mine approach. And finally, when Christians are involved or when the people of God are involved, we see the power and favor of God involved in the political process. So when you read the stories of Joseph and of Daniel and of good kings, this is what's taking place. And I think there's no better example uh, that I can think of in how this has played out in real life than William Wilberforce. If you're not familiar with the story of William Wilberforce, I would strongly encourage you to read a biography uh, by him or uh, about him or to watch the movie Amazing Grace. It tells the story beautifully about how he participated in the political process of England to abolish the slave trade. And he did it for decades, and he worked within the systems that were in place, and he tried to reform them from the inside. And so the first thing that we see here when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, is to recognize and obey the government. And Scripture backs this up. The second one that we see is to worship and obey God. We recognize and obey the government, but we don't worship the government. We are to obey the government, but we are not to worship the government because, you see, not all things are Caesar's. So he says, yes, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but not everything is Caesar's. We don't worship the government. We don't worship the political process. We worship God. We obey God. And that sometimes includes what has come to be known as civil disobedience. And there's a really good example of people who are under authority discerning that they cannot obey the authority. You read Acts chapter 4, and you see the disciples of the early church being told, you must not speak in this name. Now, that's a religious authority, but it's an authority that they are under. And they say, listen, <laughs> this is one that we can't comply with. And you can do with us what you need to do. You can flog us, you can kill us. But we cannot help but speak in the name of Jesus. It was a done deal. They had predecided. It didn't matter what they threw at them. And so when the government or the law is morally wrong, when it causes us to break our allegiance to God, that's when civil disobedience ends, enters into. It's not when your candidate doesn't win that you start with civil disobedience. And if you do feel led by the Spirit of God, not the pundit on TV, but the Spirit of God to have civil disobedience, you do it in a Christ-like manner. You do it like these disciples in Acts chapter 4 with a prayerful willingness to suffer the penalty of your disobedience. That's the only example that we can find in Scripture. A civil disobedience that's done with humility and selflessness, even willing to die for the faith. And the Christian history shows us num numerous examples of this. 
where people were willing to die as martyrs rather than to deny their Lord and Savior. And this underscores the reality for us today that just as Jesus is not speaking to a people who are in a theocracy where God is the king, we, the United States of America, is not a Christian theocracy. For many years, it was named a Christian nation. It was a nation that was founded on Christian principles that was intentionally brought in. But we have to realize it was brought in by founding fathers who also held slaves as property. So there was some, there was some mixing of the mud, so to speak. And the United States is not a Christian theocracy as much as I wish that it was in many cases that Jesus was the king of this nation and everyone was a subject of him. That's just not the case. And so crusades or force or non-Christian ways of accomplishing what we think Christianity would say really don't have a place. Political Political action has a place. But this idea that we're going to overthrow the government or some of the things that you've seen from the extreme really don't have a place and they don't bear the name of Jesus. And Scripture tells us way back in Genesis chapter 12 that all nations will be blessed through Christ, through the Messiah, through his followers. All nations will be blessed through us, but the us in that is Christianity. It's not the United States of America. Now, I think the world has been blessed immeasurably in many, many ways by the United States and by it being founded as a nation that is a Christian nation in its origin, but it is not a Christian theocracy. And even Jesus himself, even our king, the king of the kingdom said, my kingdom is not of this world. When he's visiting with Pilate, He says, my kingdom is not of this world, and you don't even have any authority that you wouldn't have if it wasn't given to you. But he's saying, my kingdom is not a political kingdom. It's not a kingdom that looks like the other kingdoms of this world. My kingdom is a new order of authority. That's what that word means in the original Greek. The word kingdom doesn't have anything to do with a king with a crown or a throne. It has to do with an order of authority, that the kingdom of God is the order of authority of God here on earth. And when his will is done in his way, that's the kingdom. And so John Tyson makes this statement that initially, I wasn't even sure I was going to quote it. It was very provocative to me. It'll probably be provocative to you. He says, we should have more in common with a Christian in another country than an American who's not a believer. Wow. Now, I think he's talking about we should have more in common in practice, more in common in prayer, more in common in worship than a Christian from another country than we would have with an American who's not a believer. And as I wrestled with that and trying to decide, am I going to quote this or not? I decided I agree with it 100%. And you know why? Because God led me to, Roman, or to Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 and 29, when Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, but Christ is all and is in all. And so Jesus is saying that, Mark, you have more in common with another believer of a different socioeconomic standpoint, of a different nationality, even of a different gender than, that is a believer than you have with someone that looks and acts just like you that is not a believer. And that's what should be true of us. So first, we recognize and obey the government. Second, we worship and obey God. And third, we always Give primary allegiance to God. Primary allegiance to God. We see this when he says, give to God 
what is God's. And here's where this really comes to you, to home to roost. Remember in verse 16, he took the denarius. And he says, whose image is this? And whose inscription? And they said Caesar's. And he says, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. But when he says give to God's what is God's, what is God's? Whose image is on you? Whose image is on me? Scripture tells us that God created you, he created me in his own image, that his fingerprints are all over you, that his inscription is on you, that his love is written on your heart. And it didn't hit me until we were singing the worship song this morning. He chose you. Actually, it was when Cheryl was reading the Scripture that he chose you. So as much as we like to cast a vote, God cast a vote for you. He wants your heart. He chose you. All the way back in the early books of Genesis, he chose people. He chose a nation to be his nation. And now he brings you into that nation through Jesus Christ. He chose you. And that's why we give primary allegiance to God, because we were created in his image, because he chose us before we ever chose him. And that means everything. That means that when we, he, Jesus says, give to God what is God's, that's you. That's everything you have. That's your time. That's your talent. That's your treasure. That's your sexuality, which we talked about last week, that we give that to God. And we bring it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We give our vocation to God. We give our allegiance to God. Everything. That's discipleship, learning to follow Jesus Christ, to live our lives as he would if he were us. And I think this involves maintaining an appropriate detachment to the things of this world. The old song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full on his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I've got this uh, Coffee with Jesus to share with you. I've shared Coffee with Jesus before. I like this. It's like a comic strip, but it's way more than a comic strip, right? And it's just always these different people having Coffee with Jesus. And so here this lady says, you know, the system is broken, Jesus. And this popped up in my memories from Facebook that I had shared several years ago, probably during an election year in early November. I'm like, oh, that's perfect. That's what we're talking about. And Jesus says, you know, the system never worked, Dan. Wow, she says, you're even more cynical than me. Nah, I just got a system that hasn't been tried yet, Jesus says. He has a system that has not been tried yet. It's the system of one command, love one another. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a system that hasn't been tried yet. And we as the people of God, giving primary allegiance to God, should be praying every day for revival, for his way, for his system to be the system. And there's coming a day when that will happen. But until then, we have to be faithful and we have to make sure that we're always giving primary allegiance to God. And so as you pray for revival, I would encourage you to make that a daily prayer. Put it somewhere that you'll see it daily, that you'll remember it daily. Put it into your phone to remind you daily. But I also want to encourage you to come to our 24 hours of prayer on December 8th and 9th. Now, we were really excited for several months or several times that we went and did this, that 24 hours of prayer grew and grew and grew. And the last couple times, it's just kind of plateaued. And it's not because everybody's there, okay? And so I would really want to encourage you to carve out some time between 5 p.m. on December 8th and 5 p.m. on December 9th 
to come to the sanctuary and to pray. And we're going to have a special kind of guided Advent prayer journey that will take you through and prepare your heart for the Christmas season. But I hope you'll stick around afterwards, and I hope you'll pray, and I hope you'll pray for the needs of the people around you, and you'll pray for what's going on in your life, and you'll pray for revival. And I also want to challenge you between now and then to do an audit of how much time you spend on politics. Now, some of you, you just don't really care about politics. Politics aren't your thing. But if politics are something that you pay quite a bit of attention to, I would like you to do an audit. How much time do you spend reading political news, looking at social media that's primary political, which is kind of hard to escape, Christian, or I'm sorry, political talk, radio, papers, newspapers, magazines, emails that you subscribe to, television, etc. And just try to figure out how much time do I spend in a given week on political things. And then I'd love for you to do an audit on how much time you spend in your Bible, reading your Bible and prayer and fellowship that doesn't have anything to do with politics because I see those lines getting crossed more and more. Worship serving the poor or those that are not yet in the kingdom of God, the spiritual practices, etc. Just make a list on one side of the paper, draw a line, make a list on the other side of the paper, and see what you find and then fix what you find if it's not in line with where your actual allegiance is. Because no wonder we give an hour or two to cable news and social media, and then we go about our day and we can't understand why we don't have any peace. Whereas if we gave an hour or two to the Lord and to cultivating a relationship with Him on a regular basis, and then just get the highlights, because that's all you really need, how would that change our experience throughout the day? And that kind of leads us into how we can participate in this political climate, okay? I don't want to just tell you everything and then leave you nothing to do. I want to give you some ideas and, and just encourage you to, to pick up one or two of these and really focus on that. How do we participate as the church and as individuals in this political climate? And so the first thing that I would say is that we should be marked as the church, as the followers of Christ with what I'm calling an eschatological hope. How many of you used the word eschatological in the last week? Didn't think so. One, very good. Just kidding. Okay. Well, eschatology is the study of the end times. Okay? So we should have a hope because of what we know about the end times. Like, read the end of it. I know Revelation's a trip, but there's one thing that's clear as you read Revelation, and that's that we win, that it's good forever for the people who are in Christ Jesus. And yet we don't live like that as the people of God much of the time. We get all freaked out when it doesn't go our way. And as a church, I think we've gotten all freaked out way too much. And we haven't exemplified the kind of eschatological hope that we're called to live with every single day. We shouldn't get too excited when things seem to be going well, and we shouldn't be too heartbroken when they're not. We must maintain an eternal perspective and not over-invest in political answers to the brokenness of this world. Yes, we have to engage the political process. And yes, there are things that can be accomplished through that to address the brokenness of this world. But if we're going to over-invest in anything, I would hope that we would over-invest in discipleship. That we would over-invest in evangelism, in spreading the good news. That we would over-invest in prayer and mission, and service, and worship. And that these are the things that can actually heal the brokenness of the world. And so we live with an eschatological hope as we participate in this current political climate. Secondly, that we would have a humble conviction, emphasis on 
humble conviction, that when we have convictions, we would maintain humility in those convictions, that we would choose to contradict the ways of this world with humility and in a way that's full of promise. Humble conviction looks like being a non-abrasive, culturally sophisticated, theologically conservative person who seeks common ground wherever you can find it, instead of the opposite. And so we choose to be non-abrasive and to not be overly abrasive. We choose to be somewhat culturally sophisticated, like actually reading an article in a publication that you would never subscribe to so you can understand the other side and what are their motivations and what are the things that inform their opinion instead of just retreating to our echo chamber to hear people say the same things over and over again. That we would bring a little cultural sophistication and then as we understand that argument, now we can build common ground with somebody say, well, I understand this part. I actually read this article by so-and-so and I agreed with this point, but I, I just think the way we go from there is different. Could, could we have a conversation about that? instead of just throwing things back and forth at each other and looking to build that common ground wherever we can. I think the church exemplifies this in the book of Acts. I would encourage you to read through the book of Acts and pay specific attention to chapter 2, chapter 10, and chapter 17. Because in chapter 2, this is the first Christian sermon. Peter stands before a primarily Jewish audience that had just experienced everything of Holy Week together, and he says, you killed him. God raised him. Say you're sorry. That's basically his three-point sermon, right? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And they did, like 3,000 people did. And the distance between what was wrong and what they needed to do was very, very short. Then he goes to Samaria in Acts chapter 10. And the Samaritans and the Jews had a very different experience of who God was and different beliefs about who God was. And many of those Samaritans hadn't been in Jerusalem. And so he takes more time building his argument. And he brings them into the story in a very different way. But he lands at the same place. You have to repent. You have to believe. And then you fast forward a couple of decades probably, to Athens in the heart of Western philosophy. He's standing in Athens, and these people have never heard of Jesus. They've never, they have no idea what took place back in Jerusalem. And so he begins by addressing them as God's creation or children of creation. He says, you know, I've been wandering around the city. I've noticed your architecture is fantastic. Good job. You got all kinds of temples. You got all kinds of monuments. I even saw a monument to an unknown God. Guess what? I know the unknown God. You see what he's doing? He's starting way back here and bringing them into the story. He's building common ground. He says, That unknown God, it's Yahweh, the one true God. He sent his son to redeem us because we've made a mess of it. And what's even more, he's ignored your foolishness in the past, but he's not going to anymore. So you need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. He landed at the same place. But considering his audience, he started a lot farther away. And so that's what I think we can start to do. I think we can proceed with a humble conviction, with humility that doesn't just preach at people, but invites them into a story. I also think we can participate in a couple more ways, maybe more individually, that we would in participate with personal integrity rather than hypocrisy, not publicly condemning something we struggle with ourselves. And you see a lot of that on both sides of the aisle. That we would invest significant time in prayer and intercession. Did you know the Scripture tells you several times to pray for your leaders, for the ones who are in authority, not just the ones you're voting for, 
And then we stop praying for the political process once the other guy wins, and we're not praying for him, and we're not praying for God to give him wisdom. Now, we do this as a church sometimes, but do we do this every day? Do we pray as much for the other candidate once he's in place than we prayed for our candidate to win in the first place? Maybe we need to repent for our prayerlessness and choose to intercede for our leaders, whether we voted for them or not. When we do disagree, we need to disagree graciously, especially on social media, or not at all on social media, because you have the option, and I don't think anybody has ever been converted by an argument on social media. Have you? I haven't. I've been pushed a little farther to an extreme a couple of times because of the way that I was treated on social media, but I haven't been converted. And when we disagree, we should disagree graciously, especially around the Thanksgiving table in a few days. And last but not least, may we do all of these things with a vision of love, with a strong, humble conviction and an eschatological hope that the divine love of Christ is the one thing that can actually transform a human heart. Not the perfect argument, not the volume that we bring to that argument, but the love of Christ flowing through us into a world that desperately needs him. That's what will change a human heart. That's what will change a culture. And so if you're wondering, what's the bottom line? Man, he's been going for a while. What is the bottom line? Here's the bottom line, shortest bottom line I've ever had. Jesus is Lord. You want to know what the bottom line of the kingdom and politics is? It's that Jesus is Lord. Do you believe that? They amened in the first sermon. They didn't amen in this service. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, stand up and say it. Stand up and say, this is, I know this is a little charismatic for some of you, but this is going to be okay. Stick with me, okay? Because the Holy Spirit had in mind how he wanted this service to end. We didn't talk. Michael and I didn't talk. And then I see what song is going to be done next and how I was already planning to end this service this way. And so I want you to say, Jesus is Lord. And I want you to say it like there's some people that need to hear it that are not in this room, okay? So one, two, three. Jesus is Lord. There is power and authority that is released into this world when we make that declaration. Scripture tells us that. So I want to do something kind of unique. I want you to turn and face north. Turn and face north. There's a psalm, and I was going to look it up, and I forgot which one, but it says, Shout to the north and the south, to the east and the west. So we're going to do this. We're going to declare that Jesus is Lord to the north. One, two, three. Jesus is Lord. Now let's go to the south. Let's face the south. One, two, three. Jesus is Lord. Now let's face east. That's out the back. One, two, three. Jesus is Lord. And lastly, to the west. Jesus is Lord. Do you believe that? Let's live like it. Let's live like we believe that as we walk out these doors into a world that desperately needs to know that Jesus is Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you are Lord and we are not. We are thankful that you are Lord and the current political system is not Lord. That you have a lordship, you have an authority, you have a power that is yours and yours alone. And so we declare you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pledge our allegiance to you. And we ask you through your Holy Spirit to help us to live as if you are Lord. Filled with eschatological hope, with humble conviction, with the ability to disagree graciously and to point to people, point people to you with a vision of your love. Help us, oh God, to maintain primary allegiance to you to worship 
and obey you and to recognize and obey the authority that you have placed over us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.